0: This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bite Size Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com/webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page.
1: Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this Bite Size Bio Web Seminar, which today is sponsored by Chiagen. Chiagen is the leading global provider of sample-to-insight solutions to transform biological materials into valuable molecular insights. Chiagen sample technologies isolate and process DNA, RNA, and proteins from blood, tissue, and other materials. Assay technologies make these biomolecules visible and ready for analysis. Bioinformatics software and knowledge bases interpret data to report relevant, actionable insights. Automation solutions tie these together in seamless and cost-effective molecular testing workflows. KaiGen provides these workflows to more than 500,000 customers around the world in molecular, molecular diagnostics, human healthcare, applied testing, forensics, veterinary testing, and food safety, pharma, pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies, and academia, life sciences research. Today's presentation is titled The Use of QPCR to Validate Epigenetic Enrichment of Pathogen DNA from Complex Samples and Human DNA from Stools and is being presented by Dr. Alan Forsythe, Vice President of Infectious Disease at California Life Sciences Institute. Alan received a PhD in Molecular Biology from UC San Diego and has held founding and executive positions at Elytra Pharmaceuticals, Merck, Fleur, and Singlera Genomics. He has developed novel approaches to the isolation and analysis of rare cells, such as microfluidic chips, to separate circulating tumor cells from the blood of cancer patients. His current work is the result of a DHS contract to isolate pathogen genomes from complex samples. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation, so please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll quote them to Alan at the end. And A recording of this webinar will be available at bit.ly slash validate epigenetics enrichment webinar that's bit.ly slash validate epigenetic enrichment webinar all one word lowercase so now over to you Alan for the presentation
0: well thank you and um, thanks everyone for logging in today to this webinar Um, as she mentioned I'm going to talk to you about some of the uses of qPCR in our lab to validate epigenetic enrichment The agenda that I want to go through is a little ambitious, but in our lab, we look at a lot of rare genetic events, and I want to sort of define those for this audience and talk about some of the difficulties that come up in handling those and some of the good reasons for enrichment. Uh, One of our favorite enrichment approaches is actually epigenetic, and I'll talk to you about what kind of epigenetic differences there are. Um, in microbial versus human genomes and even within the human genome that make this such a powerful tool. Probably one of our favorite uh, enrichment tools are in fact restriction endonucleases, which is a a relatively novel approach, and so I'll walk you through how we do that, and some of the validation tools that we've used to show the power of this approach, uh, notably qPCR, some NGS that we've done in order to look at how enrichment occurs in more complex and real world samples. And then ultimately the use of enrichment also provides concentration that really improves sensitivity. That's one of the main difficulties when working with rare genetic events. I'll also show how this can be applied not just to pathogens, which is you know part of the big title of this, but also um, to human DNA that's uh, um, the rare component in things like stool. So any talk like this is also important to at least um, bring up the issues of how contamination can creep into your experiments and how we avoid it. So with that, let me get started. So this particular chart is looking at a a series of things that I consider rare events. a number of diseases fall into these categories, and their causative agent, the number of target organisms per cell, uh, per mill that cause the disease state, and the background type of cells that you can expect. As one example that uh, we won't get into a lot today, UTIs, or urinary tract infections, are predominantly call- caused by E. coli. And as soon as they reach a, a cell number of about 1,000 per mil, um, this can cause problems. This is technically an infection. There's almost always some trace levels of human cells, but I think this audience appreciates that even one human cell has a 1,000 times the amount of DNA mass as a bacterial cell. So just one cell is essentially an, an equal um, mixture Of a thousand bacteria versus one. And as you start to get to tens or hundreds of human cells, the pathogen becomes the rare genetic event. This kind of problem only gets worse in most of the disease states that are listed here. Um, These different intracellular pathogens, like Lyme disease, other spirochetes, tuberculosis, um, rarely have much more than 10 copies in a mill of a clinical sample. But the backgrounds tend to be 10 to the fourth human cells. Uh, So, really, this ends up being more like a one in a million to one in 10 to the seventh kind of problem. And one of the more challenging instances that uh, we look at in our lab is detection of the causative agents of sepsis. And in those cases, we're really looking at one in a billion kind of a problem. Uh, As I mentioned towards the end of the talk, I'll uh, take a look at. Uh, cases of human diseases notably colorectal cancer but really any liquid biopsy sample rarely has more than say five circulating tumor cells and uh, if it's blood your background is going to be 10 to the 7th normal cells And, and of course the rare event here is somewhat different right the you're really looking at the ratio of a mutation to the wild type and whether it's circulating tumor cells circulating nucleic acids, common tumors that people are looking for um, rarely hit the 1% level and can be even much rarer than that. So epigenetics is really the um, modification of the standard four bases of DNA. And this table looks at some of the common epigenetic modifications um, across the different kingdoms, from bacteria, protists, animals, plant, fungi. Again, we're all familiar with the standard four bases, A, G, C, and T, and most people are very familiar with uh, 5 methyl cytosine. So the methylation occurs at this five position. But what's not as commonly appreciated is how many of these bases are stably maintained in the host, Passed on to progeny, and especially in bacteria, become very frequent, maybe as often as one in every couple hundred bases in the case of N6 methyladen. And so that provides what might almost be called a fifth, sixth, or seventh base of DNA. And, and the reason I consider this to be important is that almost all rare event biology is about signal and noise. And what you're looking at here are signals that are often not present in one kingdom or one biology state versus another. And so if you have a good tool for fishing out that signal, and you have essentially no noise in your background, um, you've got a really good tool for doing an enrichment. So um, what you can notice here is that in addition to there being um, several other bases or modified bases that are present in the bacterial kingdoms, N6-methyladenine, N4-methylcytosine. They have um, unique roles in the bacterial kingdom, replication, DNA repair, and restriction modification. And we've taken advantage of some restriction enzymes uh, to do enrichment. So I want to take a moment just to talk to you about the restriction modification system. and There's nothing new about the restriction modification system. In fact, these are enzymes that probably evolved near the beginning of life, some couple billion years ago. And bacteria quickly began to do something to their DNA, and that is to methylate certain bases. And in doing that, they sort of created this epigenetic mark that allowed them to distinguish self from non-self. And in making a methyltransferase to place that epigenetic mark, they would make a cognate restriction enzyme that would digest any DNA identified that did not have that cognate mark. So what you're looking at in this box is essentially a billion-year experiment to create a molecule, an enzyme, that has extremely high discrimination for target versus non-target. In other words, it makes for the perfect tool for collecting an epigenetic strand of DNA. The other thing about restriction enzymes that makes them particularly useful for our uses is how rapidly they work. So, as you can imagine, they had to evolve to sort of rapidly scan all the chromosome and rapidly identify an invading phage, otherwise, the cell dies. That's why I think this is such a great. Uh, evolutionary tool. So endonucleases are also very quick to load onto DNA non-specifically, track along the DNA by facilitated diffusion, and when they recognize their site, they kink it, exposing the phosphodiester bond and allowing catalysis to digest and essentially break the DNA strand. So what this group needs to know is that Um, catalysis is actually very easy to inactivate while the binding, diffusion, recognition are all easily maintained. And the enzymes are actually also easily manipulated. Um, For instance, you can biotinylate them and add them to uh, streptavidin beads, magnetic beads. So that's exactly what we've done in our lab. Um, So how do you use restriction endonucleases as enrichment tools? Well, as I just said, the wild type DPN1, um, depicted by this sort of uh, green dot, would load and scan DNA until it sees its recognition site, which in this case is a GATC motif that's methylated at the adenine, at the N6 position. Upon seeing that site, recognizing that site, kinks it, cleaves it. So what we've done, as I mentioned, is just adhere them to magnetic beads. And we can inactivate the catalytic activity either through uh, mutations, um, modifications of uh, buffer to remove um, cofactors or poison cofactors. So these features allow us now to have a molecule, a magnetic bead, with multiple endonucleases attached that has high discriminatory Uh, capabilities. And so the cartoon suggests what's going to happen. These magnetic beads will load onto the DNA, scan until they find the recognition site, bind specifically to the methylated motif, but they don't go through catalysis. And so now one can use a magnet to fish out the DNA that's bound to these magnets, wash off presumably DNA that you don't want, and get a, uh, a, an enriched product. So how does this work? The first time we tried this, we did something, I don't want to say crude, but um, uh, we used an agarose gel for analysis. And we used uh, DNA products, as you can see on this um, cartoon. One was a 650 base pair product, and the other was a 477 base pair subset of it and all we did was one of them had the GATC site methylated the bacterial fragment and the other did not so we could mix the two and differentiate them on a gel based on their side size excuse me so you mix them we add in our DPN1 coated beads that's all in a tube what washes off should be the non-bound unmethylated 651 base pair fragment what we collect by magnetics should be the target fragment and when we elute we expect to see the 477 base pair fragment so in the gel you can see the initial input the two fragments here a 651 and a 477 Um, as we titrated in magnetic beads we took the soup and looked what was in it and you can see that 670, 651 fragment that is still uh, in the soup and when we elute off the beads we got a nice clean fragment back so we, we patted ourselves in the back felt like we'd had a tool that we can use but realized we wanted to do something a lot more quantitative and so that's where qPCR is such a great tool and so i'll, I'll give you a rundown of uh, a particular assay that we used for this, um, and how did we generated our standard curve? So here you can see that we had a, a set of primers specific to the 16S of E. coli, um, forward reverse primers, and a good probe. We used a very standard um, PCR reaction using chigen master mix, our probe mix, uh, water, and um, uh, in this case, just E. coli DNA in the titration. And we ran the titration through a PCR cycle. And what you can see is we titrated down the amount of E. coli DNA as we got a nice standard curve with a good R squared value. So we knew that we had a good sensitive method to detect the presence of E. coli and you can see our zero control down here at the bottom going out some 30 plus cycles. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. So, how do we set up an assay or a test then to look at that? In this particular test, we've included a six point titration series, and each one of these data points is a mixture that includes 10 micrograms of human DNA and some amount of E. coli DNA in decreasing amounts in each of the six tubes down to 10 femtograms so when we make this mixture we use our E. coli primer probe set we also have a human E. coli probe set and we measured the inputs to generate these two curves. You can see the constant amount of 10 micrograms of human DNA in each of the tubes and the decreasing amount of E. coli DNA in each of the tubes. And and notice something that our standard, essentially it's still a standard curve, right? In the presence of 10 micrograms, we begin to lose a certain amount of our sensitivity. So um, this is not an uncommon feature. Once you start to have a DNA molecule that's present at 10 to the 7th, 10 to the 8th, 10 to the 9th levels lower than the background, qPCR does get more complicated. Um, But you can see how linear it is across five, six orders of magnitude. Now, the other thing that we did was we took each of these tubes, we added our DPN1. Bead mixture, mixed all of it, incubated, put it on a magnet, washed off the unbound fraction, and then analyzed the bound fraction. And here's what we observed. While this blue line indicated the amount of human that was input, this was the amount of human DNA that we recovered. In other words, most of it washed off. And you can see that we lost over two orders of magnitude of the input human DNA. On the flip side, the E. coli DNA shown here by the dotted line was recovered at over 80% all the way down into the femtogram range. So we know from these kinds of experiments, the following kind of conclusions, that at least with our primers and probes, the 16S marker of E. coli is incredibly efficiently recovered by this kind of enrichment technology um, from uh, nanogram down to femtogram levels in a fairly high background. This enrichment works across at least five orders of magnitude, although we recognize that our absolute sensitivity at these lowest levels is a little bit hampered in the presence of a very high background. We can also say that the human DYZ marker is efficiently excluded by about 99.6 percent in most of these tests, Um, but we're only looking at these two markers. So we have to look at other tools to examine whole genomes and look at more complex mixtures. And that's in the next slide. So using um, next generation sequencing, we decided to make a more complex genomic mix. And we use 12 organisms that are listed down here and we put them in in pairs. So for instance, Homo sapiens and Oriza sativa, which is rice, were mixed in at sort of the top level. Then we did a tenfold dilution and put in the pair of Aspergillus and E. coli, and another tenfold dilution. So all of these are decreasing in their concentration by tenfold decrements. And that's a little easier to see when we've actually sequenced it, how it came out. So this graph on the horizontal axis is showing you the input number of sequencing reads. So for instance, for home, um, for human and rice, we had put in something like 5 million um, reads uh, into the NGS experiment. We were angling for 10, we got a slightly lower amount, And or, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, 5 million reads. But then you can also see that in the, in- enriched or bound fraction we only recovered back half a million reads or hundreds of thousands of reads. so it was greatly depleted in the enriched fraction compared to the input fraction and in fact this dotted line um, shows you what the input fraction should look like as you go down this graph you can see how the other pairs of organisms fared aspergillus and e coli for instance Aspergillus went in into 100,000 reads, came out at about the same level, whereas E coli we suddenly had several million reads. And what we observed, and we kind of expected something like this, but it came out much more striking than we expected. That is that there's essentially three types of methylomes in this experiment. All of these organisms that are well above the line are all organisms that contain GATC they include the dam methylase. Their, methyl- their genomes are methylated at GATC sites that occur maybe every 250 bases throughout the genome. These microbes along the line do not have methylated GATCs, and so they don't show the same level of enrichment. What's particularly striking, though, is that human and rice have higher eukaryotic methylation patterns, which includes not only the absence of GATC methylation, but the presence of, of extensive methylation. And so there's a, um, uh, a dislike of the enzyme for binding to these, and you see a decrease in their recovery. So this particular experiment showed us a lot of different things. In particular, that this process is not only um, sensitive to very low dilutions, Notice the levels that things like Vibrio cholera are spiked into, um, five orders of magnitude lower. But also that it's effective across a broad range of genomes. And even these other microbes are enriched an order of magnitude compared to planting. What this graph doesn't tell you a lot about is how well the coverage occurs across each of these genes. And I'm just going to look at E. coli as one example on the next slide. So next-generation sequencing is nice in that we're looking at essentially all markers of the genome. And you can see this is the input. This is the number of reads on the vertical axis and the number of reads achieved at each position, starting at an arbitrary zero out to 4.6 megabases of the E. coli genome. And what you see is that the input looks pretty even. There's a blow up here on a different scale. um, And that's compared to post-enrichment in this lower panel. And you can see now that these two are on the same scale that it dramatically increased, you know, to 250,000, 300,000 reads across much of the genome. The other thing that you can notice is that the pattern that was observed in the input is maintained in the output. And this was actually pretty cool to somebody like me who does a lot of um, bacterial replication experiments. Uh, The E. coli genome is circular, and so you see more of the origin as it's replicating than you do of the terminus. And those physical features of the genomic representation that were there on the input are even present post-enrichment. So enrichment allows us to get much better coverage, It allows us to analyze things like pathogenicity markers, we can actually see physical features of the genome, and we kind of walked away from our uh, sort of synthetic mixture of genomes experiments and said it works, now let's try it in the real world. And we've done a lot of these kinds of samples, we've published a number of them, I think uh, Um, Our our publications are readily available, Um, but I'll I'll show you a couple examples. This first one on the far left is saliva, um, and we're looking at a uh, a pooled human sample that has gone through enrichment. So the input is not enriched, and again, this is out to uh, a million reads or so, normalized uh, actually to 10 million reads. On the vertical axis is the enriched bound fraction, and you see immediately the same kind of thing. Um, There's a number of genomes that are dramatically enriched. We've highlighted a few that are known dam organisms, that is that they have GATC methylation. Um, There are several organisms that were not even detectable in the input that suddenly become highly enriched, and there are a few... That are uh, um, somewhat depleted. I I think um, it was brought up at the beginning of this talk that this work was uh, funded by Homeland Security. They're interested in looking for pathogens in uh, various kinds of complex samples. So um, in support of their work, we not only looked at human clinical samples, but we also looked at things like creek water, samples. This was a polluted lake, and they were a river, and they wanted to see what kinds of organisms were present, and um, in the absence of enrichment, we were getting fewer than, say, 10 reads in the input in this kind of a sample, and post-enrichment, there's hundreds of reads of a pathogen like Legionella that were present in this creek. So the other thing that I wanted to share with you about enrichment is uh, some of the benefits that include concentration. And, and this is particularly important because not all samples come in a uh, 10 microliter volume. Uh, and blood is a great example of something like that. This is a three mil tube of blood, I believe we were working with. And you know, one of the first things that you might do is use a DNA kit to isolate DNA. Now you might elute in something like 100, 200 microliters, but anyone who's worked with DNA, uh, blood DNA knows that it's very, it's difficult to put a lot of blood DNA into a qPCR reaction. Uh, you tend to get inhibition, and so you can really only put a couple microliters in, and then you start to um, decrease your signal. So. In most cases, we might do two microliters of blood DNA into a fairly large PCR reaction, something like 50 microliters. And when we did that, and I, I think I forgot to mention that this tube was spiked with about 200 E. coli cells. So, three mils of blood, 200 E. coli cells, isolate the DNA, take two microliters or 150th of that, and now we can run a um, A PCR reaction just straight away no enrichment and you would expect something like eight cells worth in there And indeed, you know, we get just under ten cells uh, We we get a signal that looks to be the equivalent of about ten cells if we do enrichment We see the same kind of thing. So, you know, that's good enrichment works but what one thing that you can't do with um, the straight blood DNA is Put all of it into a reaction a um, hundred microliters of blood DNA is a very large qPCR, very expensive qPCR reaction at best. But what we can do is, when we do our enrichment, we can pull off the soup and resuspend the beads directly in the qPCR mixture. And then when we do that, we can just do it in a standard reaction as we did here, and suddenly we get a much stronger signal. Um, I note that we did not get back the full 200 cell signal that we would have hoped for, but we get back a very strong signal. And especially when you're looking for things that may have only been present at say 50 or 10 cells in this tube, you would have completely lost it um, if you had not been able to stuff the entire blood volume of DNA into the reaction. So some observations. Um, the direct resuspension um, of an entire volume of DNA into an enrichment reaction allows us to do pretty extreme concentrations. In this particular case, uh, you know, we've put in as much as 500 microliters and res- um, resuspended it in 10. Um, in this next example that I'll show you, I think it was a, a mill reaction. One nice thing is that we believe we see reductions in blood DNA inhibition. Um, That's a set of data that I'm not going to show you today, but it's sort of apparent. Um, And certainly, we're removing hundreds of micrograms of human DNA. And as you saw in earlier slides, when you get rid of that human DNA background, um, you you improve your sensitivity uh, at low levels. So the other thing that this becomes important for is really whenever you're working with clinical samples, concentration can be incredibly useful. And that's always an issue when you want to look at uh, the human methylome. So why does one want to enrich human DNA, not just pathogen DNA? Um, human DNA is sometimes the minor component. It is sometimes present at low quantities in samples like stool. Tumor DNA is also typically present at low concentrations, you know, often well below 1% in liquid biopsy samples. And targeted enrichment of the methylome is a great way to improve your diagnosis of different disease states and to enhance discovery of different uh, methylation-based diseases. So for the following experiments, we're not using DPN1, but we're using a type 4 enzyme mcra uh, that recognizes the following motif Um, a cg motif where methylation occurs at uh, the c5 methyl c Um, so standard human methylation pattern and there's a slight preference for um, pyrimidine cytosine and tyrosine on the front end and uh, purines on the back end and i'll show you some examples that we looked at uh to examine liquid biopsies efficiency in the presence of stool. So the lab instantly gets upset when you say you're going to work with stool samples. Why would anyone want to examine stool? And there's actually a pretty simple answer. People really don't like colonoscopies. So, so there's a, a motivation to identify mechanisms that we can um, test human health without being as invasive as a colonoscopy. But this still has a lot of challenges, right? It it may be relatively simple for a patient to collect the sample, um, but it needs to be stabilized, transported. And then in the lab, you're going to do homogenization, DNA isolation, PCR, and uh, maybe some kind of uh, sequencing or detection. But there's a lot of challenges. Once you get those samples, homogenization strategies are, are challenging with something that's relatively... Um, non-homogeneous. Um, isolating DNA is difficult, and we find that we often get very low quantities, uh, very low concentrations of human DNA. And we have to dilute our samples because of the presence of stool inhibitors. The inhibitors are, are many different kinds of things. You know, there's carbohydrates and other kinds of things there, but there's a huge excess of bacterial DNA. So when I talked about rare genetic events. Um, human DNA is the rare component in stool and when you try and do a standard curve in this case we like to use ALU. Um, ALU sequences are are scattered frequently throughout the human genome so you've got a a nice strong signal Um, and it gives us a very good standard curve but when we do that in the presence of stool all our curves compact down and we do dilutions and different things as I mentioned, but there are a lot of challenges in actually getting an accurate determination. If we do NGS, um, and this particular sample uh, is, a, is a great example of humans working together to do science. This individual donated a sample after eating only sequenced organisms for a week. This is um, an experiment that was done some time ago when we didn't really know what to expect in uh, sequencing a stool sample. But what we found out was that the human fraction was an incredibly small component, let alone trying to detect anything that you might've eaten. It's dominated by bacteria. So we envision a slightly alternative workflow to what I suggested before. Um, We might collect a couple grams of sample to homogenize but uh, well under that maybe a couple hundred milligrams will go into dna isolation Um, we'll take a hundred microliters of isolated dna and dilute it to one mil in an enrichment and this gives us the the opportunity to dilute out the um, uh, inhibitors which are in the soup whereas the dna is going to get bound to our beads wash everything else away and resuspend those beads in 50 microliters of PCR uh, for detection, or move on to a library prep. So, what do we get from this? Um, as I mentioned, we might put in something like two grams of stool. We'll get something back, like say 86 nanograms of human DNA. It doesn't all go in uh, to the enrichment, but if we put in something like 11 nanograms, we get back 82 percent of it. So we have a very good yield using this process. Um, The amount of bacterial DNA um, will be in the microgram levels. We'll reject 96% of that. And so it gives us a pretty good ratio. You know, you come in at ratios that are well under 1% human DNA, and you come out at ratios that are more like 35%. We don't have uh, published NGS data yet. But we do have some good conclusions, um, notably that it is possible to segregate human DNA from a large excess of bacterial DNA. Um, this can be done in the presence of a very complex and difficult-to-work-with matrix in this case. Uh, and it, and we can concentrate a very large sample for direct use in PCR. And we remove a lot of the PCR inhibitors. And we we assume that this is because uh, an enzyme is not at all like silica. And so there's a lot of things that stick to silica because of its um, charge-charge state that just doesn't happen with a restriction enzyme. And as I said, kind of the bottom line is we end up with about a 35% human DNA concentration, Um, way better than one percent, and so that puts us in a reasonable position to do CRC mutation profiling. So I mentioned I would at least touch on the topic of contamination, and let me um, wrap up uh, some of the data with uh, these comments. Um, We have seen tubes and tips come in with contamination. We have seen magnetic beads come into our lab, and they're contaminated. We haven't seen anything with primers and probes, but we have um, uh, contaminated those ourselves. (laughs) So you can imagine some of the suggestions I'll be giving this audience. Um, Enzyme preparations have typically shown up clean. Uh, Buffers have gotten contaminated. I mean, lab personnel often introduce it and your environment often introduces it. So really, you have to be suspicious of everything. And the solutions, of course, are to process and to have a process that you're going to test essentially all vendor components in each new lot. When things come in, um, we test the lot, we'll break it into aliquots, test the aliquots, freeze them down. And now we know we've got you know good sterile components that we can go back in and pull out when, we, when we're ready for them. Um, You should have a standardized workflow where you separate amplification. Sample handling is a completely different area in, in our laboratories. Likewise, NGS is separated off. Wherever you can, you design primers and probes to minimize amplification from humans and commensals. I mean, that's part of the power of qPCR. And we do a lot of training, and personnel are tested on assays that are prone to contamination. You know, sensitive human assays like DYZ and ALU are are great. Not not first test for your your new personnel, but sort of a, a last test before you move them on to more sensitive assays. And, of course, all of these things should have no template controls with them. So probably nothing new there, but um, it's probably helpful to hear that other people have had things come into their lab. And these are the ways that you catch it and prevent it from uh, ruining an experiment. So conclusions for the use of endonucleases for enrichment. Um, First, I should point out that the eukaryotic kingdom, really the signals are in, in the DNA world are AGCT and methylated C you have other signals in the bacterial kingdom. So this gives you opportunities to choose your signal and noise, especially because there are over 300, um, restriction endonucleases out there. And so that gives you a lot of options for what you want to bind and not bind using these kinds of approaches. I think I only showed you two restriction enzymes in today's uh, work. I think we've published on maybe five or six. This technique we've shown is sensitive to small fragments. The smallest one I showed you today might have been that 477 base pair fragment and kind of the um, agarose gel. I think we've done gel shifts on fragments uh, of about 20 base pairs. Um, And I showed you several cases where we're sensitive to femtogram quantities or essentially a single cells worth. Uh, We actually think we probably are Uh, have about a 70% chance of binding each fragment in a mixture. We can demonstrate genome-wide sensitivity. There aren't a lot of hot spots or cold spots. Um, And we can segregate or enrich a target DNA from a large excess of non-target DNA. This process can be done where we can concentrate an entire sample, hundreds of microliters up to a mil. Uh, for direct use in a PCR reaction. And um, we see that at least some PCR inhibitors uh, are removed during this process or reduced in a way that is not like silica. So with that, I'll say thank you and um, uh, return to our sponsor. But I will also give thanks to our um, uh, funder in this case, who is Homeland Security for this work and uh, my many fellow coworkers who will appear in my um, uh, uh, publications. So thank you to this audience.
1: Thanks, Alan. That was an excellent presentation. We do have a few questions from the audience, but if anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So the first question I have is, so how is detection done today for disease states like sepsis, where the GM target is present at about one in 10 billion?
0: Um, interesting question. Um, presently, in, in clinics and the like, they are not using a lot of molecular biology for this. This problem is still done primarily through microbiology. Um, So samples of about three mils are plated on agarose plates, and essentially you're amplifying the signal through growth. And so you'll hear people complain that they can't get information about uh, what the infectious agent is for three days to a week, however long it takes to grow up the strain and then type it. So really the answer to your question is, There's not good tools. There aren't good rapid tools when you start to have a one in a billion problem. And that's exactly the problem we're trying to solve.
1: That makes sense. Yeah, because that's such a small ratio that kind of blows my mind trying to figure that out.
0: Yeah, it's also not easy to even do experiments like that, right?
1: right. Yeah. <laughs> so,
0: so uh, my my team does a great job with some of the titrations. They they look clean and nice, but um, not. It's not always as easy as it might look.
1: Okay. And our next question is: um, This is a very intriguing enrichment method, but did the biases that you observe cloud your ability to analyze a complex mixture?
0: Um well it, that's an interesting question because I think by its nature enrichment is a bias. Um mm-hmm. you're you're certainly you're you're picking winners and losers. Right. If you understand what the bias is and it works in your favor then it's a good method. Um actually could you repeat that
1: question again? So this is an intriguing enrichment method but do the biases you observe cloud your ability to analyze a complex mixture?
0: Okay, um, so I, I think the answer is no. When, when you know what the biases are, um, you make them work in your favor. If you don't know what a bias is, then you'll have something hidden from you and mm-hmm. it could cloud your judgment. So I, I guess I do get questions about biases from time to time, um, especially from the microbiome community because they don't want to disturb the ratios of the bacteria that are present in a sample. And this will certainly um, enhance the representation of some bacteria over others. um, But we want to do that. So we're trying to pick the needle out of a haystack Mm -hmm. and we're choosing enrichment tools that enhance our ability to look at certain kinds of pathogens. And that does mean that there's a bias against the others. So interesting right. question. And I think it always depends on what you wanna do as to whether you call it a unfortunate bias or something that's actually working in your favor.
1: It sounds like kind of these bias or this bias depends on what your um, desired outcome, like what you're wanting to study.
0: Right, right. So there, there is, I guess there is a risk that you could um, miss something that you didn't know was there. Mm-hmm. But if, you've, if you took advantage of some of the samples that we put up on the board, like creek water, right. I mean, that biome is just rich with, with, you know, thousands if not millions of, of organisms present. And it's pretty clear that we're detecting a a number of things that you couldn't do without this technology are there other things there that are being lost um it's a hard question to answer because if we just use standard techniques we don't see them
1: okay. <laughs> so, <Right>. so, <laughs> so, so there's
0: a yes but you never know what you
1: can't see right you can't know what you don't know and then I have a question about, um, so which do you use more, qPCR or NGS for analysis and why?
0: I think we use qPCR more. It's, um, it's faster. You get your answer, you know, uh, right. a couple hours later. It's relatively inexpensive. And if we know what we're looking for or we have a good surrogate, mm-hmm. it, it pretty much tells us if something worked or didn't work. Um, But when you want to do more than analyze a few markers, then we get into NGS, um, and that's often the case, I don't know, when it's an unknown agent Mm -hmm. or um, we want to characterize something fairly thoroughly. If we want to do more than just look at um, predetermined markers, so discovery work is almost always a little more NGS-based.
1: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense, because you'll be able to get a wider target or a wider range of results.
0: Right, and, and just a, more, a greater depth of information. Um, you know, we were just talking about what you know versus what you don't know. If, mm-hmm. if in our lab we're looking at a pathogen and we might set up qPCR primers to see if um, uh, methicillin resistance is present, and maybe it's not but we if we didn't use primers to test for carbonicillin resistance you won't know if it's there or not there but if you do sequencing you'll read out everything that's present so there's clearly advantages sometimes to ngs the the biggest issue is timing cost
1: yeah that makes sense and then our last um so we do have. Okay, sorry. We have a question that just came in. So um, Igor asks if you have any recommendations for the blood volume for DNA extraction in case, in or in the case for a pathogen detection and quantification through qPCR. Um,
0: the the problem with blood samples and really any biological or human sample is they're so varied. So mm-hmm. depending on the pathogen you're looking for it may or may not be present in a one, two, or three mil volume. Um, you know, at the early stages of a bloodborne infection, I'm not convinced that even, you know, 10 mils will have something at the very early stages of an infection. So that's kind of a tough question to answer. The standard of care is to, to culture three mils. Okay. So I think that's the safe answer. The, the second part of his question might be a little more technical how much blood can you put into a uh, DNA isolation and how much can you get into a qPCR reaction Um, we've been working with kits that allow us to isolate DNA from 10 mils Mm -hmm. and we're getting it all into a single qPCR reaction but we are doing a lot of um, uh, in-house tricks to make that work
1: okay I was kind of surprised that's a very large quantity to of starting material.
0: Yes, yes, it's not trivial.
1: Okay. And then we have a question about how are you, particu- in particular, how are you applying your um, technology?
0: <laughs> well, that last question was uh, actually a lead in. <laughs> okay. We are. Uh, a group that doesn't mind taking on a big challenge. So we have been looking at trying to be able to do detections of um, bloodstream infections early in the disease state. Um, I'm also working with a collaborator um, to detect treponemes and to do Uh sequencing of treponemes. These are spirochetes that cause things like syphilis and related diseases Um, to do uh, whole genome sequencing. Treponemes are not culturable. So non-culturable uh, organisms that are present in, you know, one in a million type quantities are pretty hard to sequence. And uh, we've been working with the collaborator to sort of do this uh, from a wide variety of sample types. So you'll see a publication on that probably during the course of this year. And um, I, I hope to be able to publish more of our work on uh, bloodstream infections In the future.
1: Okay, and we have a question from Ruby, and they ask, "How do you identify the different types of contamination versus aggregation?"
0: Um, I I might have to have her clarify that, but I think she's asking, "How do you know where the contamination comes from?" Um, The second part, asking about aggregation, I'm not sure what she means by that. So Mm -hmm. I'll tackle the I'll tackle the first part. There's sort of two clues. One is what is the contaminant, and that can sometimes give you a, a clue. Whenever I see human commensals, um, p. acne, and things like things that are on our skin, um, I, I don't blame the lab staff, but I suspect that it's personnel that uh, inadvertently contaminated something. When we see things that are a bit more esoteric, different pseudomonid species, things like that. Those are more commonly coming from buffers and the like. Um, the way we figure out what it is, is controls. And okay. um, you know, then we, we, we might have to go back and test two or three buffers, something like that, in order to identify the specific um, uh, component that we're gonna toss out. And sometimes we just toss out two or three components and bring out all new vials for, for things.
1: Mm-hmm. That makes sense, because sometimes it's just better to just do that.
0: Yeah, sometimes it's starting fresh. Yeah. And like I said, I, I don't know how clear I was around this. Essentially, we validate every component up front, and that way when we do see a contaminant, we know it's not sort of rampant in all of our materials and it's <laughs> much easier to track down.
1: Okay, then we have a question from um, Dickie. They ask, is there any gene that – is there any gene related to sepsis? Oh, sorry. Is there any gene related to sepsis that can be used for detection? I believe is what he's saying.
0: Any gene related to sepsis that can be um, used for detection. Um, that might actually have two components to it. One is if it's a bloodstream infection, the causative agent can be one of you know a large number of things. I would imagine that there's about 25, 30 organisms that make up about Mm -hmm. 95% of infections. So that's a pretty big range of markers to look for. Yeah. Um, There are markers of sepsis, not necessarily the infection, but the actual... state of of the septic response of the patient so there are a number of those markers out there and you can probably just google and and take a look at at some of them but when it comes to the actual identification of the causative agent um you know using 16s and 18s and and these sort of universal markers for microbes is about as simplistic as you can get although it won't necessarily give you a specific ID, it'll give you a generic ID.
1: Okay, that makes that does make sense. Okay, and I believe that is our last question for our Q and A session today. So to close out, Kajen has designed a checklist for the efficient pathogen detection, as well as two detection kits, all designed to help you with your research. The Kyogen quantanova pathogen kits contain the complete list of safety features, such as in-process controls and two-phase hot start to assist researchers in overcoming their challenges during pathogen detection. While the Quantanova pathogen kits are dedicated for pathogen detection, the Quantanova qPCR kits support any gene expression experiments. Both kits are automation ready if needed. To learn more, please visit the kiagen PCR gene expression page and you can look at that under the resources in the knowledge area for RNA universe slash gene dash expression slash PCR and the link for this is being sent out to everybody right now. Well and that brings us to the end of our seminar so thank you again Alan for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion and thanks also to our sponsor Kyogen. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the webinar page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There you can see the other webinars we have lined up for you in Bitesize Bio. So until next time, good luck in your research, and goodbye from all of us at Kaijin and Bitesize Bio.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bikesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.